So, good evening everyone. It is lovely, lovely to be here. My name is David Bates, and don't let the accent fool you. I realized I've been in California now for over a decade, so I am practically one of you people. <laughs> a few years ago, I was asked to come and speak to the Gretti Group, and I gave a talk which was entitled, Is There Life Before Marriage? Now, if you want to know the answer to that question, you can search for that entire talk, because it's posted on my website, restlesspilgrim.net, or you can listen to it on your podcast app, uh, just by subscribing to Theology with an English Accent. I share all my talks on there. And those of you who have heard me speak before know that I shamelessly promote all of my websites. So now that we've got that out of the way, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was very privileged uh, to be asked by Ian to come back to the Gretti Group and to give another talk. But initially I wasn't really sure what I was going to talk about. Because you see, there are some people who specialize in talking about chastity and chastity-related issues, and that's not really me. That's not what I typically address, and I'd already come and spoken and given my two cents about the single life. So I wasn't really sure what to do, but when I looked at my bookshelf, I saw this book, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, and I felt rather inspired. Now, C.S. Lewis, even if you haven't read any of his books, you've no doubt come across the Chronicles of Narnia at some point, even if they were just the movie adaptations. Uh, and if you want my opinion, first one was pretty good, second one was okay, third one was terrible. Now, I am a huge fan, huge, huge fan of C.S. Lewis. Here in San Diego, I run a C.S. Lewis book club. We meet monthly to discuss all of his books. Uh, although, actually, at the moment, we're suspended C.S. Lewis for a little while and currently going through G.K. Chesterton's orthodoxy, just for fun. But I also have a podcast called Pints with Jack. And together with my co-host in New York, Matt, we go through C.S. Lewis books chapter by chapter, uh, unpacking them and discussing them. Now, if you don't know much about C.S. Lewis, he was born in 1898 in Belfast. A lot of people think he was English. He wasn't. He was Irish. So close. So close. And although he was baptized Clive Staples Lewis, you do kind of wonder how much his parents hated him giving him a name like that. But from a very early age, he insisted on being called Jack. And so that's what his friends and family called him. And that's why our podcast is called Pints with Jack. And I thought that was probably worth emphasizing because as I talk about his book, The Four Loves, and I talk about Lewis, I'm inevitably going to call him Jack every now and again, and I didn't want you to be confused. But having said all that, this is what we're going to be talking about tonight. Because when I saw this book on my bookshelf, I felt kind of inspired. And I'm going to be drawing very heavily from it tonight. And it's going to be quite a challenge to get this entire book into a 45-minute talk. Even on the podcast, Matt and I usually take about 45 minutes to discuss a single chapter. So I'm going to have to obviously move through this material fairly quickly and miss out some stuff. But if you have any questions, we're going to have a Q&A at the end. And I have a C.S. Lewis book to give away, as well as some CDs for those who are brave enough to ask a question. But before we begin, we should pray. And many of you know that I go to an Eastern Rite Catholic parish. It's called Holy Angels. It sits on the hill that overlooks Mission Valley and the 805. You typically pass it as you're heading up to Los Angeles. And everybody usually thinks it's a mosque, 
but it's not, it's a Catholic church. And if you ever come and visit us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., uh, you'll see that we look an awful lot like Eastern Orthodox, but we are still Catholic, and we are in full communion with Pope Francis. But anyway, since tonight we're talking about love, I've actually entitled this talk, Love, a Many Splendid Thing, because we're going to be talking about the different kinds of loves under the umbrella of the word love. And so I thought we'd begin by a traditional prayer from the East. It's attributed to St. Basil the Great, and it's all entirely focused on the subject of love. So if you'll please join me in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ my God, set my heart on fire with love in you, that in its flame I may love you with all my heart, with all my mind, and with all my soul and with all my strength, and my neighbor as myself, so that by keeping your commandments I may glorify you, the giver of every good and perfect gift. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Love is like oxygen. Love is a many splendid thing. Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. This is a line from a movie. Does anyone know what movie it comes from? Wow, okay, let's hear it. Moulin Rouge, exactly. It comes from Moulin Rouge and it is in turn quoting songs by the band Sweet, Paul Francis Webster, Joe Cocker, and naturally the Beatles. And in this movie, this line comes from the lips of a character, appropriately enough, called Christian. But what is the true Christian understanding of that word, love? That's really going to be the question that we're going to be looking at tonight. Because think for a moment the different ways that we use that word, love. It's a very simple four-letter word, but we apply it to so many different things. We'll say, I love my dog. I love my mother. I love my friends. I love my country. I love my girlfriend. I love the Padres. I love tacos. And I love God. Now here we're describing lots of different kinds of objects, lots of different kinds of relationships, but for all of them, we're using just the same word, love. And the love that I have for my girlfriend, the love that I have for tacos, and the love that I have for God, they're all hopefully very different. If they're the same, then we're in deep trouble. And what's happening here is that we're bumping up against the limits of the English language. Now don't get me wrong, I'm a huge fan of all things English. But this does seem to be one of the extremely rare, extremely rare occasions when the language does seem to have some kind of deficiency, only having a single word to describe such a broad range of relationships. Uh, although, as an Englishman, I must say we're still better than the French. Because in French, they have no distinction between liking and loving. They just have one verb for, the, for both of them. It's called aimer. So, still better than the French. But we're perhaps not quite as good, at least in this area, as the Greeks. Because the Greek language doesn't suffer from the same deficiency as English. They have four different words which, when translated into English, are rendered love. They're storge, philia, eros, and agape. Now, needless to say, 
It's all Greek to me. And yes, those are, you can expect those sorts of low-quality jokes for the rest of this talk. So just you know, get used to it now. Consider it practice laughing. But if all of those words, philia, eros, storge, and agape, if they can all be translated as love, what is actually the difference between each of those words? So storge. This refers to a kind of love which we might call affection. Almost anybody can be loved with storge. It doesn't demand any particular greatness in the objects of love. And it can even cross the boundaries of species. A man may love his dog with affection. And storge develops very naturally for, with, for the people who are in our lives. The objects of storge, they are almost always familiar. It's the kind of love that you see develop within a household. And while you might be able to know the day and the hour when you, say, became friends with somebody, or the day and the hour when you fell in love, Storge isn't like that. Storge creeps up on you. When you realize that you're having a feeling of Storge, it's already been happening for some time. And that's because it's the most humble, and it's the most modest, and it's the least ecstatic of all the loves. For want of a better word, it's comfortable. Here's what Lewis says. He says, it is to our emotions what soft slippers and an easy, almost worn out chair and old clothes are to our bodies. Wraps you around like a blanket, almost like sleep. At its best, it gives you pleasures, the ease and the relaxation of solitude, but without solitude itself. Think of those unlikely friendships uh, which arose, say, at university just simply as a result of being assigned to the same dorm or the same residence as the other people. You were often very different, very often weren't bound together by a whole lot of stuff. But you lived in vicinity to one another. And after a good bit of time, you started to see goodness in the other people that you might not have seen if you hadn't spent that time with them. It's when you find yourself saying something like, David has a really good sense of humour when you get to know him. And Lewis makes a beautiful comparison that I really love. He says, storge, this, this kind of affectionate love, he says it's like gin. Because gin is a drink in its own right, but it's really good as a base for cocktails. And that's same true for storge, because it's really good as a base for some of the other loves, like friendship and romantic love. Speaking of which, philia. This refers to the kind of love which exists between friends. Has anyone here been to Philadelphia? Or does anyone know what Philadelphia means? Yes, that hand at the back. The city of brotherly love. So friendship. You've got the word philia right in there. And Lewis has this lo lovely description. He says that lovers normally stand face to face, absorbed in one another. But he says friends, they stand side by side absorbed in some common interest. This is a thing which binds them together, be it a love of cards or a love of God. Now, a slight disclaimer. When we studied this book in our book club, uh, there was a little bit of a division, division between the guys and the girls. Because the girls thought, Lewis's description of friendship here 
it fits guys a little bit better. Because needless to say, friendship among women is more exotic and complicated and incomprehensible to the male mind. But still the same basic principles do apply. Now, the next kind of love is eros. Does anyone want to hazard a guess as to what kind of love we mean when we talk about eros? Erotic love, exactly, we've got that root word in there. It's romantic love that's between a couple. It's the state of being in love. And lastly, we come to agape, or agape. I'm probably going to keep changing how I pronounce it through this entire talk. I haven't decided which one I prefer. But out of all the Greek words that I've cited tonight, I can pretty much guarantee that all of you have heard at some point a homily which mentioned agape. In Latin, it's translated as caritas. And in ye olde King James English, it's called charity. You know, today we, we tend to narrow the meaning of charity much more, to think of it as just caring for the poor, but it's so much more than that. Charity, agape love, refers to God's love. It's the love that God has for us, for humanity. And it's the love that we Christians are called to love one another. So in 1958, C.S. Lewis was invited to speak on the radio about love. And he examined each of these four loves. And two years later, the radio talks were compiled and converted into a book. But before we go into what Lewis said, I think it might be worth telling you a little bit more about the man himself. And through the lens of these four loves. Now I'm hoping by doing this, I'll help to continue to distinguish these different kinds of loves and also help us to understand them a little bit more deeply. So let's begin with storge. You'll recall this is best translated as affection and it's driven by proximity and familiarity. So let's talk about Lewis's parents. Over the course of his life, he didn't really have a very good relationship with his father. But he was very close to his mother. But unfortunately, that made it all the worse when she died of cancer, when he was just nine years old. His brother, Warney, they were inseparable as children. They were always drawing or playing soldiers or climbing around the attics of the house together. And after Warney left the army and retired, he actually moved in with Lewis and they lived at a house in Oxford for the rest of their life together. Lewis was a teacher at Oxford University. And actually also in that house, there was Janie and Maureen Moore. These were the mother and sister respectively of one of Lewis's fallen comrades because he served in World War I. And the men agreed that if one of them died, the other would look after the, the other's family. So that was Storge. What about Philia? You'll remember that Philia refers to friendship. Was that important to Lewis? Well, he was no hermit. He had a very, very strong circle of friends, and he valued them highly. For example, Lewis corresponded with his friend Arthur Greaves, who was back in Ireland. They corresponded for over 50 years. That's over half a century of handwritten letters that we have. We'll be talking a little bit more about Arthur later. And also one of his friends was J.R.R. Tolkien. You will no doubt know him as the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. 
and you can actually thank Lewis for those getting finished and published, because if it was left to Tolkien, neither of those would have happened. But Lewis and Tolkien, they started a group called The Inklings, and they would meet in the local pub every Tuesday morning, as well as in Lewis's rooms every Thursday night. And over a pint and a pipe, they would talk about the things that they really cared about. And not only that, they would read to each other what they had been writing and offer one another criticism. And Lewis once said, my happiest hours are spent with three or four old friends in old clothes, sitting up till the small hours, talking nonsense, poetry, theology, metaphysics over beer, tea, and pipes. There's no sound I like better than adult male laughter. Friendship was very important to him. So we've spoken about Lewis's store his affection, his philia, his friendship. But what about Eros? Was there romantic love in Lewis's life? Now, while he lived most of his career as a bachelor, he did marry late in life. With the success of all of his books, Lewis would get an awful lot of letters. And so much so that he would spend a good portion of every day, an hour or two, each and every day, responding to this avalanche of letters. And among these letters was one from a lady named Joy Davidman. She was ethnically Jewish, she was a New Yorker, and she was a former atheist and communist. And she'd become a Christian in no small part through Lewis's books. And the two struck up a friendship over this correspondence. And she actually visited and ultimately moved from America to England with her two young sons. But when it appeared that her visa wasn't going to be renewed by the English government, Lewis did something quite incredible. He offered her a paper marriage so that she and her sons could become English citizens and so they could stay in the country. It was, however, just a piece of paper. It was a nice thing that Lewis was doing for his friend. Unfortunately, Joy was soon after diagnosed with cancer. You can imagine the flashbacks that Lewis had with his mother. And the prospect of losing her really helped Lewis see the depth of feeling that he really had for Joy. He wrote a letter to his friend Dorothy Sayers, and he said, they say that a rival often turns a friend into a lover. Approaching death is a most efficient rival. We soon learn to love what we know we must lose. And so the two of them were married at her hospital bed. And this marriage wasn't simply a piece of paper. And the Anglican priest who married them also laid his hands on joy. And she very soon after went into remission. And the two of them had several very happy years together before the cancer ultimately returned and she died. And you can read about this movingly in Lewis's book, A Grief Observed. So we've looked at storge, affection, philia, friendship, and eros, romantic love, in Lewis's life. What about agape? Where was the divine love? Now, although Lewis died a very famous Christian, and she died on the same day that JFK was assassinated, so although he was a very famous Christian, Lewis wasn't always a Christian. He was raised in a fairly nominal Church of Ireland house. 
But before he reached the end of his childhood, he had become a confirmed atheist. Fortunately, as an adult, through the books that he read and the friends that he had, he first of all came to believe in God, and then ultimately Christianity, and divine love himself, Jesus Christ. And following his conversion, Lewis was known as a man of great love, great agape, great, great caritas. He lived a life of tremendous generosity. He founded the Agape Fund, which was a charity which he founded and through which he gave away two-thirds of his income. And he also wrote many wonderful books, such as Mere Christianity, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Great Divorce, and The Space Trilogy, and the book that we're going to talk about a little bit more now, The Four Loves. In this next section, we're going to look at what Lewis had to say about each of these loves. We're going to look at the natural loves of affection, friendship, and romantic love. And then we're going to look at that last one, that supernatural love, which we call agape. And I want this talk to be very practical. So after that, I'm going to be offering a few comments about how each of these loves can go wrong. How they can become distorted. And we'll then conclude by looking at what Lewis says we need to do, not only to prevent these loves going bad, but also so that they are elevated to new heights. So let's begin with Storge. If you recall, Storge isn't based on how good-looking you are or how intelligent you are. It's born out of proximity and familiarity. And the real great strength of Storge is its ability to love the unlovable, or at least to love those to whom you would not naturally be drawn. You see, we choose our friends. We choose our spouse. But Storge works a little differently. We might not be naturally attached to our next-door neighbor, unless he has been our next-door neighbor, and possibly for some time. First of all, we tolerate him, and we later come to enjoy him. It's kind of like eating your vegetables. You don't like it initially, but you do eventually. But unfortunately, Storge can go wrong. It sounds so benign, but it can go wrong. And Lewis mentions several ways in which it can go wrong, but I just want to focus on two. The first is that since Storge is based on familiarity, it doesn't deal well with change. Any break in the familiar, if one person in a pair starts a new hobby, it's quickly met with derision because it feels like the other person is drawing away. You might feel like that person thinks that they're suddenly better than us. And that actually relates to the other real problem with affection, with storge. Because in storge, there is a need to be needed. And that need to be needed can take over. And as a result, it can become possessive, jealous, and controlling. In The Four Loves, Lois tells a story of Mrs. Fidget, who recently died. I hope this is fiction, because it's very tongue-in-cheek. Lois writes, It is astonishing how well her family have brightened up. The drawn look has gone from her husband's face. He begins to be able to laugh. The younger boy, whom I'd always thought as an embittered, peevish little creature, turns out to be quite human. Mrs. Fidget very often said that she lived for her family, and it was not untrue. Everyone in the neighborhood knew it. 
She lives for her family, they said. What a wife, what a mother. She did all the washing, true, she did it badly, and they could have afforded to send it out, and they frequently begged her, but she didn't. There was always a hot lunch for anyone who was at home, day or night, even in midsummer. They implored her not to do this. They protested with tears in their eyes that they liked cold meals. It made no difference. She was living for her family. She always sat up to welcome you home if you were out late at night. Two or three in the morning, it made no odds. You would always find the frail, pale, weary face awaiting you, like a silent accusation. Which meant, of course, that you couldn't go out with any, with any decency very often. And Lewis goes on and on about how this woman's love, so to speak, had tortured her family. And he ends by saying, the vicar says Mrs. Fidget is now at rest. Let us hope she is. What's quite certain is that her family are. And this character of the, 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 the parent who loves too much, so to speak, appears regularly in Lewis's other work. You see it in mere Christianity, you see it in the Great Divorce. But in each case, Lewis is very quick to point out that the description isn't right. It's, the problem isn't that there is an excess of love. There is a defect. It has become distorted. And it's not the only love which can become distorted. So that was how affection goes wrong. But what about friendship? Well, Lewis said that the typical expression of a friendship beginning is usually something like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. Remember earlier I said that he wrote to his friend Arthur Greaves for half a century? They actually lived nearby for a good long time before they actually became friends. Lewis, <laughs> when you read his early diaries, he was a jerk. Uh, but he was not interested in making any new friends. You know, he had enough, thank you very much. But he was eventually pushed to go and visit this other boy that was in the neighborhood. And he walked in and he saw this book of Norse myths. And Lewis loved Norse myths. And they looked at each other and was like, wait, do you like this? Wait, do you like this? And suddenly they were friends. Remember I said that you can sometimes point to a moment when a friendship begins, or when you fall in love, where it's with storge, with affection, it just sneaks up on you. They knew that moment. Aristotle said that you become friends over something else. And the best kind of friendship is when that's over virtue, a transcendent third, when God is the thing that's binding you all together. Of course, it's not always quite so highbrow. I was best man a few years ago for my friend Nathan, and I know the moment when we became friends. We were driving to go hiking. It was the first time my friend Catherine, he was her boyfriend. It was the, it was the first time that we were spending any time together, and we had a couple of other friends. We were driving in the car, and Catherine was talking, and she said a word that I always find ridiculously funny, and people think I'm childish for it. How would you say the word duty? And Nathan and I, at the same moment, just sniggered. And Catherine, oh no, there's another one. But at that moment, we became friends over something so ridiculously childish. In the four lives, Lewis points out that our view on friendship has really undergone a change. He said, to the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, 
the crown of life, and the school of virtue. Does that sound how we regard friendship today? He says the modern world, in comparison, ignores it. We admit that, of course, that besides a wife and a family, a man might need a few friends. But the very tone of the admission and the sort of acquaintances described as friendships show clearly that it is something quite marginal, and I love this line, something quite marginal, not a main course in life's banquet. To the ancients, friendships, that was a course in life's banquet. And this was long before the advent of Facebook. You know, it's ridiculous when you see, oh, I have a thousand and not friends. No, I don't. And what makes it even more interesting is we actually live in a world of rampant loneliness. Back in my country, there is uh, one of the ministers in the cabinet. It's the Minister for Sport and Civil Society. And last year, the remit of that role was expanded to include loneliness. And the media jumped all over this, and they now refer to that person as the Minister of Loneliness. When you listen to survey after survey, it is shocking the number of times you hear people say that they have no close friends, particularly men. So believe me when I say that, I'm very grateful for my close friendships, particularly my close male friendships. I have a men's huddle, guys I meet with regularly to share the journey. And honestly, I can say so much more about friendship, but I'm just going to quote from Sirach, uh, chapter 6, which just simply says, A friend, a faithful friend, is a sturdy shelter. He who finds one finds a treasure. A faithful friend is beyond price. No sum can balance his worth. But like story, like affection, even friendship can go wrong. There's a common saying, I think it's meant to be attributed to Jim Ron. He says that we are the average of the five people we spend most of our time with. Just think for a moment, who are the five people that you spend most time with? Because friendship is great in that it strengthens whatever it is that binds the friends together. Yeah, there's a reason that we come to church, so that we are bound together, so our faith grows and is stronger and can, is more resistant to attacks. And that's great when the friendship is based around something good. But not all friendships are based around good things. They're not all about, around virtue. Some are around vice. Friends can give each other moral support or immoral support. Friendships can make good men better and bad men worse. And this is why we should choose our friends very carefully. And there's another danger with friendship as well. Because when we gather together as friends, it can start to become exclusionary. We are now the in-crowd. Everyone else isn't cool enough to join us. And the worst thing is, that even happens at church. Particularly when you go to church functions and you see these little circles form, it's great people are talking, but I'm kind of worried about the people on the outside. So what about eros, romantic love? Now when people talk about love in day-to-day -day conversation today, this is usually the kind of love that they really mean. This is the love of romantic comedies and trashy vacation reading. However, we do need to make some distinctions here. Because remember earlier I said it's the state of being in love. Sexual desire without eros simply wants sensual pleasure. Eros, on the other hand, wants the beloved. It wants a person. 
Eros makes a man not want a woman, but a particular woman. He desires the beloved, not simply the pleasure she can bring. And Eros is wonderful. Every single pop song says it is. And one of its great strengths is it obliterates the whole concept of giving and receiving. Our entire focus is on the beloved. It takes us out of ourselves. And Lewis says that the very mark of Eros is that when he is in us, we would rather share happiness with the beloved rather than happiness on any other terms. But once again, Eros can go wrong. And Eros in particular can go wrong because it seems to speak with the voice of God. Because it demands to be honoured and obeyed unconditionally. And as a result, immorality, no matter how terrible, can quickly be justified on the basis of being in love. How many affairs began with that justification? And not only that, romantic love, when it becomes all-consuming, can take those involved to some very, very dark places. And if you don't believe me, just ask Romeo and Juliet. So those were the three natural loves. Storge, affection. Philia, friendship. Eros, romantic love. So we now come to the supernatural love. Agape, caritas, divine love. And this is the kind of love that God has for us. And Peter Crave says that agape is a scandal to reason. And it's because agape loves not based on merit. It means loving people not just what they, how they deserve, but absolutely. It's unearned, it's selfless, and it's unconditional. And it's willing the good of the other. That's the famous St. Thomas quotation, his, his definition for what love is. It's seeking the object's good for the object's sake, not just for what I can get out of it. And not only is this the way that God loves us, it's also how he commands us to love one another. And we hear this every Monday, Thursday. Does anyone know where the word Monday comes from? It comes from the Latin text that's read that night, Mandatum. Because that night, we read how, after the meal, Jesus gets up, and washes his disciples' feet. And he gets back up and he says, I give you a new command, mandatum. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, in mere Christianity, Lewis responds to the question that a lot of people then ask. How do I do that? How do I love my neighbor? How do I love my enemy? How do I love somebody when I don't feel like loving them? And Lewis just he has a very simple answer. Do it. Because it's a matter of the will. Jesus commands us to love one another, not have loving feelings towards everyone. You know, that's, you can maybe work that up for about 30 seconds before somebody is really annoying and just destroys that loving feeling that you've been working on. Now, for the other loves, I spoke about how they go wrong. And with agape, it doesn't really go wrong. It's not like the natural loves. However, we resist it. And the reason is, why do I want to be loved? I want to be loved for my good looks and intelligence and wit. I want to be loved for all of my good qualities. But that's not how agape works. Lewis says we want to be loved for our cleverness, our beauty, our generosity, fairness, and usefulness. The first hint 
that anyone is offering us the highest love of all is a terrible shock. And it's ridiculous, because this is the love that we need. It's the love that I need, but it's the love that I don't want. And we resist this because of pride, the deadliest of the seven deadly sins. So tonight we've looked at several different kinds of natural love, storge, philia, and eros, and we've seen how they can go wrong. And Lewis tells us that every natural impulse, however innocent in itself, may stand between God and us, and so become an idol. But when does this happen? Jack tells us that a love that begins to be a demon the moment it begins to be a god. That's quite shocking, so I'm going to say it again. Love begins to be a demon the moment it begins to be a god. He says that every human love, at its height, has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. It tells us not to count the cost. It demands of us a total commitment. It attempts to override all other claims and insinuates that any other action which is sincerely done for love's sake is thereby lawful and even meritorious. So according to Lewis, that's how love, that's how they go wrong in general. And I think it's more, I think it's, I think it's easier to see with some particular kinds of love. For example, love of country, patriotism. Patriotism is a good thing. Love of country is a good thing. However, I think it's safe to say that particularly following the large-scale and brutal wars of the 20th century, we can readily see how this kind of love, love of country, if it is set up as a god, if it's set up as the most important thing, it can meet some extremely destructive ends. However, as I've said, any of the natural loves can become distorted. Affection, we think, can be benign, but can become possessive, a monomaniac. And a group of friends, they can lift us up, but they can also confirm us in our faults, as well as become exclusionary and foster within us a pride for being in the in-crowd. And again, it, it deserves reiterating that this doesn't mean that any of these loves are intrinsically bad. In fact, I would say it's the very goodness that makes us mistake them for something even greater. Clay is not often mistaken for gold, but brass is because it looks similar, but it still isn't the same thing. And so all of this has been a setup to answer another question. How do we stop these loves going bad? And Lewis says that the answer is easy. Agape. If we make either affection, friendship, or romantic love our highest end, we will end badly. Because love, when it's left to its own devices, and when it's allowed to trespass its bounds, it's going to cause great damage. A garden that is left unattended will quickly become a jungle. And left unattended are natural loves. They will very quickly cease being loves. So in order to save these natural loves, to protect them from becoming distorted, we need agape love, and we need our loves rightly ordered. And we need this agape love not because the natural loves are bad, but because Agape love returns these natural loves to the hands of God. In The Great Divorce, Lewis says this, No natural feelings are high or low, holy or unholy in themselves. They are all holy 
when God's hand is on the rain. They all go bad when they set up on their own and make themselves into false gods. This is why Jesus told us that if we're to be his disciple, we must hate mother, father, sister, brother. And there it doesn't, he's not really telling us that we have to hate our family, but what he's saying is that our priorities have to have him first. I'd like to conclude by just pointing out that everything that we've been speaking about tonight is summed up in Christ. All of the natural loves, storge philia and eros. Jesus came to reveal to us the Father, and as the Son, we're adopted into the family of God. And despite the wide variety of people who come to church from every race, nationality, socioeconomic group, walk of life, our parish is called to be a family, a place where we nurture affection. In John's Gospel, Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I call you friends. For everything that I've learned from my Father, I have made known to you. And he even redeemed Eros. Because through baptism, we're joined to the body of Christ, the church, which exists in a spousal relationship with God as the bride of Christ. And St. Paul says that this is to be the model for Christian marriage. However, all of this was only possible through Christ's incarnation and crucifixion. Because these are the ultimate signs of agape love. It's agape love because while we were still sinners, God humbled himself, took on flesh, and died for our sake. And he didn't do this because of any great thing that we had done. It wasn't because we were so fantastic that Jesus came to do this. It was pure gift. And earlier tonight we shared in that gift at Mass. Jesus instituted the Eucharist so that whenever Christians gather together, they could encounter him and they could receive this gratuitous gift of grace. And our Lord gives us Holy Communion so we will be filled with the divine life. But this is a gift that we mustn't hold to ourselves. We receive his divine love so that we can pass it on to others so we can love our neighbor as ourselves. Because divine gift love is what enables us to love even the unlovable, to love our neighbors, to love our enemies. But it also enables us to love our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, St. John said, God is love. Before the world came into being, you existed as a community of love. You brought us into being through an overflow of that love. You loved each of us into existence. And even while we were still rebels, even while we were still running away from you, you came to call us back and made the way. Heavenly Father, please send forth your spirit. Pour your love into our hearts, that agape love, so that we can love you with everything that we have, to give it back to you, and to pass it on to others, as we love our neighbours and even our enemies. We ask this in the holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.